When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Before we kick off the show, if you're a fan of History Hack, please do what you can to support the show. We completely get that not everyone is able or willing to dig into their pockets. Times are hard. But by dropping a like, subscribing on Twitter and YouTube, and importantly, leaving a review wherever you get your podcasts, you can help the program grow and reach more people. If you're interested in becoming a supporter, go to patreon.com forward slash history hack, where you'll find perks from secret Facebook groups to early release material. If you just want to leave us a one-off tip, go to co-fee.com forward slash history hack. The links are in the description. And whatever form your kind support takes, know that we are massively grateful. Enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to another episode of History Hack. Welcome back to our future history week where we're talking about the history of issues that are really relevant now and that are really sort of part of the way we move forward as people. So Zach, who have we got today? Well, today we've got something that, as you say, is is massively topical. It's something that has really come to the fore in terms of our kind of realisation of how significant an issue this is in the last sort of 18 months or so. So we are joined by Richard Carlton Crabtree, who is director of the Oakdale Wellbeing Group and is a leading figure in the Department for Health's Improving Access to Psychological Therapies Group. He is the author of Psyche, The Mental Health Crisis and How We Got Here. So, you know, you can work it out for yourselves. We are going to discuss today the history and, of course, the future of mental health. Richard, brilliant to have you on. Thank you for joining us. How are you doing? Yeah, very well. Thanks, uh, Zach. And uh, very nice to be here. Thank you for inviting me on. See, we we used to start these right back in the pandemic by asking kind of how people were doing, kind of tapping into that that whole question. I kind of feel, although we've stopped doing that as lockdown disease, I kind of feel that's kind of relevant. How was the pandemic for you? Well, it's um, I think in terms of how I'm doing, like optimistic, it feels like we've uh, we've turned a bit of a page. Definitely these last few weeks and months, it seems as if touch wood things are reopening. Yeah, of course. As you say, quite relevant for this, but it's obviously something that's placed a lot of stresses on an awful lot of people and a lot of sort of unprecedented stresses or unprecedented in living memory over the last 18 months. So 
it has been a tough time for many, like others I had to adjust and get used to working from home and these kind of things. But, um, but yeah, it feels like, as I say, ho hopeful and optimistic for the future now. We often think of mental health as a modern phenomenon, don't we? And we've had a couple of episodes that have been great. We looked in detail at the, like, the introduction of melancholy in the Renaissance period in the 16th century. And we've had a look at attitudes, to, Victorian attitudes to lunatics, for want of a better word, to use their terminology. Mm -hmm. um, in reality, of course, mental health is as old as humans themselves. Uh, I, I do self-inflicted wounds in the First World War, and some of my work has gone back and looked at how Roman soldiers were dealt with um, when they self-harmed to get out of service. How far back can we find evidence of mental health disorders? Is it evidence in the ancient period? And if so, how is it addressed? Like with those soldiers, um, there's kind of exceptions made. They still get a dishonorable discharge. It's not great, but they're not, they're not treated like traitors. But what do you find in a, on a broader spectrum of evidence? Sure. Okay. Well, I know this is the first question, but I'll have to start by taking, a, I guess, a slight liberty in that I'll take a very broad definition of the question. Yeah. Um, because as you can imagine, and I'm sure you know, sort of definitions of what's understood uh, and meant by the term mental ill health have changed sort of hugely over time. Um, and it was only really in the 20th century that we got to the point of having sort of uh, broadly accepted international classification of different psychological disorders. Um, because as you can imagine with sort of physical health and some physical conditions, I guess like a broken nose, it's quite easy for, well, I suppose it's as plain as the nose on your face for a surgeon to, to diagnose what's going on there. But with mental health, it's clearly more challenging because um, quite often a psychological disorder might lead somebody to display behaviours that are slightly outside the norm. But then the act of being able to group those, realise it's a, a sort of cause of a you know, something with a psychological origin and add a label to it, and then for that to be commonly accepted, that's been a really sort of slow burn to get to, to get to the point we have now. And as I say, really only the sort of 20th century where we've got a, a sort of increasingly sophisticated and broadly accepted international classification of many uh, sort of modern disorders in terms of what we think of today as mental ill health. Um, but if I do adopt that broadest sense, then and we look at the archaeological record, you can actually go back before the ancient world and back into right into the dark depths of history into the neolithic and prehistory and it was quite interesting when i did the research for the um the book uh, i came upon this practice of uh, trephination and the evidence for that actually goes back about eight eight and a half thousand years and what's quite interesting there is if you look in the archaeological record there are skulls found sort of all over the world really but with particular concentrations in in europe in france and in South America. Um, and these skulls exhibit um, evidence of, of this practice of trephination, which is where a, a hole is effectively bored into the skull. So it's quite regular and precise. It's not, you know, it's clearly not a battle uh, wound or some kind of accidental injury, but there's some kind of um, effectively surgery gone on there that's been done deliberately for a reason. Um, and then some evidence of healing around these holes sort of indicates that some people at least managed to survive the, the procedure. Um, and so that's in the archaeological record, and obviously different academics have come up with different theories as to why this might have happened. But because it's, these skulls have been found all over the world, we're sort of looking at something that affects humans all over, so something perhaps that's universal to the human condition. And when we're going that far back, we're sort of in a time where um, all explanations for health, whether physical or, or mental, if mental health was even understood separately, 
they rely on supernatural explanations or you know, some sort of deity that's determining um, the health of people. Um, so the thinking there is perhaps if, if you've got in all populations a proportion of people who are ex exhibiting really extreme disturbed behaviour, it may be thought they were possessed, it may be thought that there's just a huge pressure there, that can we release this pressure? And so this practice was done to try and either release the spirit or to, to sort of relieve that pressure. Um, so as I say, that, that evidence is eight, eight and a half thousand years old. And then the first sort of medical texts that refer to anything that we might think of as mental, although really it's, again, sort of um, physical medicine in terms of dealing with brain injuries, really. But that goes back to the sort of ancient Egyptian papyri, so maybe four, four and a half thousand years. Um, and then, yes, as you say, in ancient times in the classical world, there's sort of increasing evidence as the centuries tick down towards the birth of Christ of, of naturalistic understandings of health and within that of mental health. And they sort of emerge in, in ancient Greece and in Rome. And at that time as well, as well as just sort of the first uh, naturalistic explanations, um, we also get some kind of distinction that is a little bit familiar to people who might practice mental health today in terms of a slightly more nuanced understanding of different psychological disorders. So for example, some understanding of the fact that some mental health issues might make a subject act out and produce behaviours that are quite antisocial or troublesome to society and some kind of mania as they would have termed it, but also that depressive type conditions are also possible. So some uh, psychological issues that might make people withdrawn and so on. So that is also emerging in the classical civilized civilizations. But again, sort of looking back into, um, into history, the further you go back and the sort of less complete, you know, the evidence is. Um, so it's, it's relatively coarse-grained still at those times. And of course, one challenge is that where people are producing extreme behaviours, those are likely to intrude in society and get noted. But if people are just depressed and become withdrawn, it's just not going to make, you know, it's not going to intrude into anybody's notice. So again, you're dealing with quite imperfect uh, sources there. And particularly one of the things in the book is to look at is the society we've built today, how well designed is that to sort of produce good mental health compared to different ways of living that people have experienced in the past. And one of the challenges was sort of definition, accurate data, uh, which just is absent, you know, for large, large, many periods in history. Um, but certainly in terms of the, the evidence, if we do abroad, adopt that broad definition, it goes back a long, long way. And in terms of those different ways of kind of constructing society in the past, obviously one of those is a much greater emphasis on religion, which is a topic that you look at very early on um, in your book. And looking at that relationship between mental health uh, and, and religion, how do you see the link? Does it help or does it hinder because there are two ways of looking at this one is to look you know if you're experiencing uh, kind of difficult times in terms of your mental health you could turn around and say well that's god punishing me for something that i've done but the flip side is that you can turn around and say well you know this this is all part of god's plan you know so it, it's it's some somebody else is behind all of this yeah. so how, how does it work yeah, I mean, you're quite right. There's two, dif two different ways of looking at it. So though it might sound like a sitting on the fence answer, <laughs> I have to say it sort of can manifest differently. So I guess to expand a bit on what you were saying, if people do have true faith and, you know, they have real belief um, and that kind of level of true faith has, you know, characterised many societies, many different parts of the world throughout history, 
then, as you say, you've got there effectively a sort of moral code book, and usually a religion comes with some kind of text and some kind of guide for life and perhaps some kind of faith that the grand design will unfold as it's intended to, and also some kind of faith that when our time, sort of a mortal earth is done, that there is something else there for us. Um, so that, you know, clearly can be a source of comfort to many, many people. Um, and also when you've got that, that sort of certainty and rules for life, as it were, commandments or whatever else, it takes away the anxiety of personal decision-making to a degree. Um, so quite often anxiety is associated with the fact that we've got perhaps a decision to make or there's an outcome that's uncertain and we worry about how that might go. But of course, if we have faith that things will unfold and it's all in God's plan, as we're sort of told to do, then, then some of that goes away. And there's also some quite practical things in that often, you know, religious communities, you're, uh, there's a whole sort of social life that builds around that and a routine that can be very sort of helpful for people's well-being. So actually, sort of on a personal level, I do feel that all that is hugely valuable and can actually protect and promote good mental health. Um, and what we're sort of seeing a little bit more today, again, gets to the flip side of what you were saying, is when that goes away, and if a society becomes more secular or we sort of lose that belief, then what do we replace it with? Because there's clearly a void to be, to be filled there and people sort of realise that, well, or they may feel like I'm actually alone in this universe. There is no sort of grand design or super agents looking after me and taking care of everything I do. And so they might agonise over these decisions of, of sort of personal responsibility and, you know, how should I live my life and what should I fill this, this void with and perhaps lose a little bit sort of of that direction and guidance. And so I think that can potentially for some people at least, of course, everybody's different. It can lead to sort of a, perhaps a greater vulnerability to, to mental ill health. Um, on top of that, of course, on the, on the other side, there's all the, I guess, the sort of externality things associated with religion. So the fact that it's either been a, a, a cause officially or in reality of countless wars and other transformational events down the, down the ages, which of course then carries as part of this all sorts of implications for our mental health and just the way societies exist and, and function. Um, but my, my sort of overall sense of it, I have to say, is that generally for people who have, have faith and sort of feel ardently and believe and live in that way, generally speaking, it can be a very positive thing for, for promoting good mental health. One of the things I've found, though, when I've been researching, so obviously the, the worst manifestation of poor mental health is suicide. Um, and one thing I had to do is that my work on self-inflicted wounds, which is not we are going on to war in a minute, but is is talking about the silence behind it and why it was why it's taboo and why in the official history nobody mentions suicide and nobody mentions people who took their own lives or hurt themselves in the course of a war. And I went back and actually the, the medieval church has got a lot to answer for in terms of us not talking about our mental health because if so if you committed suicide in the 12 1300s it depended like in different western societies but certainly in france um you would your body would be dragged through the streets if you were a suicide or hung in front of everybody your heirs your people you left behind would be denied inheritance it would be you weren't allowed whatever you had didn't go to them it went to your lord or whatever uh, so there are actually really arbitrary, mean attitudes. I'm, I'm talking about the Catholic Church um, without wanting to cause offence to anybody who prays at that altar. But it that was arbitrary and it told you that 
if you killed yourself, you're, you live in purgatory. Uh, Dante's Inferno has the suicides, aren't they waving about like trees, unable to move and sort of rooted in one of the circles of hell. So how does that, that I think is a major part in the Western world of why for so long you look down on people with mental health issues. Yeah, I mean, you're quite right. One of the things I talk about in the book is how in the sort of classical world, we had these, you know, these flickers of a naturalistic interpretation of health and mm. mental health emerging. And then with the sort of fall of the classical world and the, the sort of rise of um, Christianity, and there is a, a, you know, a clear shift in terms of the, the rate of progress of mental health, as well as clearly of yeah. many, other, many other sort of aspects of medicine. And there was an insistence that the the spiritual domain is the domain of the church. And certainly I think that did inhibit um, sort of progress in, in understanding yeah. of mental ill health. I think there was actually a, a sort of papal diktat that said, for example, that, you know, we abhor the spilling of blood. And that was interpreted quite widely to me. Well, that's several, that's, isn't it? I mean, it was called self-murder. Yeah. So, that, you know, was a modern, relatively modern term. Yeah, and I think this this sort of inhibited, you know, not just perhaps as one might imagine it was intended, let's not go and attack people and, and engage in warfare, but things like sort of invasive medicine or surgery that might advance sort of medical understanding. And it's absolutely true, I think, that um, there was a, a clear divide between sort of physical and, and mental health and, and progress there in, in terms of the spiritual being the domain of the church and sort of off limits to medicine. And so advance, advances in physical health continued to a degree, but mental health did. There was, there was certainly a real stigma associated with that, a real stigma associated with the idea of suicide and that, you know, all, all life is sacred and that must, must not happen. And yeah, a, a sort of general lack of acceptance of naturalistic explanations or inquiries into yeah. mental yeah. health and that was any, anything outside of that spiritual domain that was... Well, absolute and faith was absolute that's very very true yeah. what's interesting as well is that one of the, probably the most famous um manifestation of beginning to challenge those ideas because then you get into like the enlightenment and by the 17th to 18th century sort of people are arguing that it's actually the ultimate expression of freedom to take your own life but hamlet's speech to be or not to be is really topical for that time of people just starting to engage with the idea that actually it's my choice. And mm -hmm. that, that speech is probably the most famous manifestation of that school of thought, which then led on to this whole idea that it was the ultimate expression of freedom. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it was sort of in, in that period, sort of the 1500s into the 1600s, that sort of something approaching modern psychology or psychotherapy really started to take off and that science sort of got very into that people started to um, make inquiries again in in that domain and um, and something that would be much more familiar to, to people who, you know when we're talking about mental health today <laughs> something that would look, sound much more familiar to modern ears that begin to emerge and take its present shape I mean I'm just speculating here but I'd imagine that the decline of serfdom also had a role to kind of play with that because Alex you're talking about how you know your property then kind of goes to your lord if you commit suicide rather than going to your children and you know that kind of sense that you are almost your the property of your liege lord um yeah that's why in ancient rome it's um 
so they're 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 a lot more easygoing it appears than medieval people that's when the really arbitrary attitudes come into it but in ancient rome the exception was because if you were a slave and you take your own life you're denying your owner of its property um and the same with if you're a serving soldier you're denying the state your service as well so the two exceptions really are armed forces um in a sudden flash it all comes clear it's a eureka moment an epiphany Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder Podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. And slaves. Let's stay with that kind of military theme then that you, you've just raised, Alex, because there is an obvious context within which actually we've been discussing mental health for across history for significantly longer than perhaps we have been discussing about the prevalence of it within contemporary society. So talk our listeners through how attitudes have kind of changed in, in that field of war and, and discussions around mental health. Sure. I think um, when you think of the context of war, it's clearly, uh, you know, extraordinary stresses are exerted on the human psyche. It's, you know, sort of very visceral in that it's going to be the cause is very important and people are in, you know, sort of life or death situations. So it's a very sort of extreme sort of arena to look at sort of people's psychological condition. Um, and associated with that, there's also, and again, I think Evan's going back thousands of years of um, there being it being typical for there to be attendant positions with with armies because clearly it's in the interests of you know the ruling classes that these armies are in a sort of have good morale are in a good state and you've got sort of medics often attached to armies to make observations of all these people in these extreme conditions um, and similarly because you know battles or wars are so often turning points or pivotal in in the face of nations. The, there's often a great incentive to keep records there. So it is quite a, um, a rich source of information, relatively speaking, when we're trying to look back into history, including about mental health, where in many arenas, the records isn't quite as complete as we might, we might hope. Um, one of the things that I found really interesting when I was looking at the, uh, sort of researching the book as somebody who's sort of been working in the mental health field in the modern world, and um, post-traumatic stress disorder is condition that I think was sort of finally accepted and given that term about 1980 but had a very very long sort of journey to that point so again if one looks back um, and I think shell shock is often named as a, as a sort of forerunner name for it you know uh, how it was conceptualized previously and the first appearance of shell shock was in 1917 in the, the Lancet and I was sort of looking back at the records seeing what else I could find prior to that and if one thinks about the symptoms that are typically associated with post-traumatic stress disorder, it is, as you say, it runs sort of, you know, all the way back <laughs> throughout history, as long as we've got records of conflict and battles and wars. And it had sort of various different names. I think I found some interesting stuff from the American Civil War time and then sort of European conflicts, um, sort of a little earlier than that, that talks about exhausted heart um, and soldiers' hearts and things like this. Um, but effectively, the symptoms that are described are really extremely similar to PTSD and it's quite an interesting example that brings out what you were what you were sort of describing there in the question which is I certainly associated that before doing the research with the first world war and you know clearly tens of thousands of 
combatants were affected in the First World War. And I think people like um, Sassoon and Owen and the war poets sort of made sure that was perhaps, you know, known about their writings, reached an audience, and they described it in a way that perhaps meant that shell shock became, it reached the public consciousness in a way that perhaps soldiers' hearts or earlier manifestations of this just hadn't done. And then it was quite interesting for me to look at the, the comparison with that in the Second World War, because, again, before getting into this research, I sort of thought of the Second World War as being um, the, in terms of when I think of the psychology of the Second World War, the names that come to mind are things like, you know, the stiff upper lip and the fortitude that was shown uh, by, I guess, the, from the British perspective at the time when we were, you know, holding out against the, the Nazis. Um, and again, when you look into, or were rates of PTSD or shell shock actually uh, lower in the Second World War, it seems that actually there was a very deliberate sort of message management going on there. Uh, again, because I guess it's clearly not in the interest of the, the, sort of the um, higher ranks in the army of the war office and of the government for, for shell shock to be a problem that withdraws people from the front lines that might you know, take away from people's enthusiasm for, for fighting. And so people in the Second World War who exhibited the kind of symptoms shown in the First World War were much more quickly sort of described as exhausted, got away from the front lines, and it was all very much played down, um, which I think is part of the reason why it's not as, as sort of prominent in the narrative or as prominent in our thinking about the Second World War as the first. But I think that kind of um, the traumatic result to um, any extreme events, really, but certainly war inevitably brings those extreme events, is inevitable. And you know, has existed and has clearly happened throughout history. And it's a very sort of long journey that got us really to any sort of anything like our modern understanding of post-traumatic stress disorder, and particularly really to giving due sensitivity and appreciation to that as a condition and finding sort of effective treatments for that. What kind of methods have been used to treat those suffering from mental health in the past, thinking particularly about asylums, which we mentioned right at the beginning? Yeah, I think, um, so going back before the, the rise of asylums and in many cultures, the, the idea of treatment, it was really just considered a, an obligation that was incumbent upon the family of anybody who was really suffering. Um, so a bit like the assumed duty to look after children. So, you know, if you had a family member who was sort of disturbed or unable to function, then the family would just be expected to take care of that and expected in many cultures to make sure that that didn't become a, a sort of problem for society. And then in circumstances where there was no family willing to take on that, that sort of obligation or burden, people might just be abandoned to the streets to sort of take their chances of a, you know, in, in a life of sort of begging in poverty. And probably they would uh, not survive very long and probably that would be an organic, albeit brutal method of sort of removing or ridding society of those problems. Um, and then the sort of rise of asylums happened really from the sort of late 1700s, gathering pace in the 1800s in Britain, as well as sort of America and Europe and other places. And in there, some of the treatments were, were really quite brutal. I know they've got that reputation and it's pretty well deserved. So things, um, I mean, physical restraint for people who were very agitated and able to control themselves was absolutely typical. Um, there were some pretty horrible things like uh, sort of blistering and bloodletting and sort of dousing people alternately in hot and cold water. There was an interesting device I came across in the research called the gyrating chair, which was meant to sort of have a sitter and shock them back into sanity, but would usually just render people unconscious. And um, so there was some, they have a terrible reputation and it's quite well deserved. 
uh, things like lobotomy, which I suppose is you know really just a modern version of the old trepanation, where they where sort of incisions are made into the skull and the brain. Um, there were sort of better examples. There was also the moral method, which was something pioneered by um, William Tuke around 1800, and he was uh, a Quaker who established a, an asylum in York, and the, the hope there was to just reject completely all physicality in treatment. And they tried to sort of restore people's sanity through imposing a very rigorous order and a very sort of wholesome life. Um, so they'd have routine, everybody would work, whether they were doing sort of jobs in the kitchen or gardening or whatever it might be, but everybody was given some kind of function and purpose, very strict meal times, very sort of regulated social times. And the theory there was that if this was imposed for long enough, it would just become second nature. But certainly they wanted to reject some of the worst excesses of the asylum so there was no sort of physicality in none of the sort of horrible accounts of some of these some of these supposed treatments that were going on in, in the asylums at the time um, and then after that largely the deinstitutionalization where people came back out of the asylums was in part at least made possible by a huge sort of rapid acceleration in the range of um, psychological medication that could be made available to people as that was developed in the in the 20th century and then of course only sort of even more recently, sort of in the blink of an eye, sort of very recently in the in the grand scheme of history, we've sort of really invested in things like talking therapies. And obviously drugs are still very widely used in mental health services, but hopefully also now there's quite a good provision of talking, you know, a range of different talking therapies aimed at particular presenting conditions to, to sit alongside that. Selling a little or a lot. Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. A central question theme throughout your book is looking at the extent to which mental health is a modern epidemic. Mm. To what extent is this like genuinely new problem, a problem that has grown substantially worse in recent years? Or is this just something we've ignored till now and it's always been there bubbling under the surface, but we just haven't woken up to it because we were too scared to talk about it? Sure. OK, well, without sort of doing a spoiler and giving away the uh, the last sort of couple of chapters of the book. Yeah. Um, and I should caveat this again, there's, because, you know, we haven't had our sort of modern definitions until the modern age. It's absolutely impossible to go back and get accurate statistics on how many people were suffering with what, you know, anxiety versus depression versus PTSD versus anything else. Centuries ago, millennia ago, you just clearly cannot do that. Um, but sort of drawing on what, what evidence is there in the record, it seems to me as if there are some things we can say with sort of reasonable certainty. And I think one is that some level of mental ill health is just natural to the human condition mm -hmm. and is probably just natural in the spectrum of what humanity means. So there will inevitably, and it's probably quite natural that some people will be, um, you know, have a, a sort of be more prone to say depression or have a disposition that means they are sort of a little more that way than, than others. 
So I think there's a sort of a rate of people, perhaps with some of the more severe mental health issues, which yes, probably doesn't really change. But then there are some of the more mild to moderate mental health issues, which are the ones that certainly I've been involved with in recent years and trying to treat through the NHS. And if, if these issues are mild to moderate, they are amenable to treatment and they do react to your circumstances and lifestyle. So it is possible to shift that. So in this human spectrum, though we probably have to accept there'll always inevitably be some mental health because that's part of the human condition, there'll be many more people who might experience the more mild to moderate issues who perhaps might never be tipped into that zone, depending on what happens with the events in their life, or indeed if they're suffering that way, if we can get timely sort of treatment to them, that, um, that we can get them back out of that, that zone. And then the sort of question I think you, if I'm not sort of taking liberties again with the interpretation of your question, is, is our sort of modern society designed to effectively optimise or minimise the numbers of avoidable mental health issues compared with previous societies? And that for me is a really interesting question. So I think it's true that in many ways life we have to accept is sort of certainly in Western societies is effectively sort of safer for many people. Um, I know it's a generalization, but certainly we live longer um, and things like infant mortality are sort of lower than in pretty much any other period in history. Um, so you might think, well, do we really have, surely you would expect mental ill health if life is generally safer and we're better off to be lower because things sort of anxieties that might stem from our circumstances, um, the rates of those things would be lower. But it could also be true. I think this is a very interesting question. I did find some evidence for this. That although the sort of lifestyles people lived when we were perhaps hunter-gatherers or perhaps working in agriculture rather than um, sort of closeted away in offices, you know, living very sedentary lives, perhaps those are more sort of suited, those kind of lifestyles we used to live, to our human physiology and our effectively our state of evolution. Um, and at the moment, we're not really living necessarily, particularly in lockdown, I suppose, these active social lives that we're built for and the mismatch between the lifestyle we try and live um, and what we're, the lifestyle we're built to live is sort of manifesting as stress. And that stress accounts for the fact that perhaps some mental health issues are on the rise. Um, so that, that really is sort of the central question of, of the book. And I think there is quite a strong case to be made that many more people now, we've moved very quickly from, say, agriculture to industry, from many people and into an office-based world and latterly into an extreme version of that where we're doing a lot digitally. Some people have hardly left the house in a couple of years. And so we are missing that sort of active social element to a degree that probably wasn't previously. So although we might have been safer, we might be safer now and live longer, et cetera, and be richer, perhaps that kind of society isn't so optimised to minimise some of the mental health issues that people are now experiencing. And that's before getting into the digital world and modern social media and mm. any of those things that brings a whole other level of considerations, of course. Yeah, don't adjust. Um, I, I want to stay with the sort of the subject of how discussions around mental health have been taboo and how people quite often don't, don't know where to start with those conversations and perhaps don't want to start on those conversations for fear of saying the wrong thing. And I'm thinking particularly here, having spoken to veterans in the past who say that people don't want to go there when it comes to these discussions with their friends yeah. because the, either they don't know what to say or they don't want to say the wrong thing. So how do you think we try to go about deconstructing those barriers? Yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right. That stigma historically has certainly been there. 
And um, it's been a problem because it's been a major obstacle to people feeling able to ask for help. And so working so on the grounds that we're in modern mental health services, that's something we're really sort of constantly up against or trying to tackle and address and um, sort of fight against this stigma that means that quite often people will simply suffer in silence and they just never come forward and receive help. Or there's a great reluctance to sort of do so and they feel ashamed about the act of asking for help, which of course is a, a big problem if it stops them then receiving the, the help they need. Um, in terms of what we what we uh, do about it, um, we, you know, I think it's one of those things that, truthfully, the answer might almost sound a little bit pessimistic, but I don't think it is. I think it's one of those things that doesn't, it doesn't happen quickly because it's a culture change. And um, it, it may be a sort of generational shift that actually means that things really change and that traction really happens here. And it's quite interesting. I wrote um, an article for the, for the Independent on the 25th anniversary of World Mental Health Day about that anniversary. And that was a few years ago now. So I think it's at least sort of getting on for 30 years that there have been, you know, conscious public efforts to recognise that stigma is very unhelpful, that actually it is okay not to feel okay. And you shouldn't, that, you know, worrying about that shouldn't stop you from coming forward and seeking help. So it's not like we're starting right at the beginning of this, this journey. I really feel as if over the last 30 years, probably the last 10 or 15 years especially, there really has been a major shift in terms of how people think about mental health. And it is a little bit less sort of pejorative or, you know, we think it's not, not so much anymore the other. There's this, you've probably heard it said quite often that one in four people in the course of any given year will suffer some kind of mental health issue. And of course, within that, you might have a small proportion of people who suffer really extreme mental health issues. But many, many of these, the great majority of those issues are likely to be relatively mild to moderate anxiety and depression, which sort of all of us feel. And I do think that message is cutting through. And certainly in mental health services, we think whether where the sort of um, issue, where that crosses the line into becoming a mental health issue that we ought to treat is where those natural feelings, we all feel a bit down or depressed sometimes, we all kind of rationally might get anxious about things, but if they just remain prolonged to the point where they interfere with our functioning and they sort of stop us doing the things we want to do in life, then it's not, you know, that's something when we ought to look perhaps to reach out, perhaps for some important therapies or whatever it is. But it's not that this is something that's completely alien to everybody else. It's not like, oh, you know, you've got something horrible there. It's just you're exhibiting the normal range of human emotions and you've just got them to sort of a degree that means you could do with some help here. So I feel as if that, that sort of ball is already rolling and actually attitudes certainly are changing. And the other thing, I think it's quite like with some of the other big sort of social issues, some of the other movements we've seen, things like the Me Too movement and the Black Lives Matter movement, um, environmental sort of, um, issues. There really is a generation now sort of coming into adulthood that is saying, I guess, whether one agrees with these movements or not, they're saying we will think differently. We will not think in the way that previous generations have thought about these things. And I actually think mental health is sort of caught up in that. And I think in terms of the time it takes to change, like these other big cultural shifts, it does take time, but we're not at square one. So it's actually, again, quite a positive picture. And we, ha we have seen this, again, in the sort of mental health services we provide sort of over the last sort of 13 years. I've been involved with quite a lot of these around the country. And we have seen the sort of numbers of people presenting to us, you know, the, the sort of the demand for the services is going up and up. And I don't think that necessarily tells us that actually mental health is getting worse. I think it probably says more about the degree to which people 
do feel able to reach out for help, which in turn says something about the degree to which stigma as a problem is diminishing because it's no longer preventing them from coming forwards. You already mentioned, actually, uh, Western world and how we're better off than a lot of people in a lot of ways, broadly speaking. You talk in your book about the link between capitalism and mental health. The connection between affluence and mental health is pretty obvious because you would assume that people who have more money would feel better. Not always the case, is it? So are we now worse off in the terms of the way in which money impinges our mental health? Well, I think, as you say, it's, I know this is a generalism, but you would think if people generally have the things they need and a fair degree of affluence, you would think on a very simplistic level, there's less, less to worry about. I know they say sort of money doesn't make you happy, but equally, if you've got a real problem with an extreme lack of money and you can't sort of clothe yourself or house yourself in decent accommodation or feed yourself, then clearly that's going to be pretty miserable. Um, and I, yeah, I, I don't, I, you know, it is true that we're sort of living longer, that sort of our collective wealth is greater, certainly in the Western world. Again, I'm generalizing, but, you know, collectively, we're sort of better off on, at any time in history. But again, when you sort of drill down to the layer beneath that, there is another level of considerations there that are affecting our mental health. And one, of course, is the distribution of that wealth. I think it's also true that, again, in many sort of countries, uh, inequality is growing. So, Whilst many people may be getting better off, there are certainly plenty of people who, who aren't sharing in this. Um, and then I suppose there's just the nature of how we use and think about money. Um, and so, for example, you've probably heard of this, this FOMO thing, the fear of missing out. Mm-hmm. Um, and how that, it, if we sort of live in a world where we've sort of got enough to be content and there aren't a huge amount of other things that we may aspire to, um, then we might have no knowledge of those things and not feel as if we're missing out because we don't have them. If we live in a world where there's sort of an endless array of different things we could sort of spend our time or our money on, and we have a sort of a completely transparent and unprecedented view into other people's worlds through social media where they're consuming these things, then it can create a new and very sort of 21st century anxiety, I suppose, where people might have a knowledge of better that they wouldn't previously have had and an anxiety of, well, actually, I can see these people living these admittedly probably very curated, perfect lives, but I'm not living that way. And I sort of feel I've got to sort of keep up with that. And it um, distresses people as a result of that. So there are, I think there's some, yeah, some perhaps slightly niche, but unexpected consequences to the sort of extreme sort of version of capitalism we've got now combined with digital technology um, that have meant that simply the pressures are different to what they were before. So although it might be true to say that we're, we're better off, there's a sort of different raft of pressures that people are exposed to now that they just simply weren't before these things existed. And in a sense, that links into where I want to go next in terms of the ways in which we try and provide support, because you've talked a fair bit, or, or at least we've we kind of alluded to a, a fair bit about social media and the way in which that, you know, you might think that having a platform where you're better connected with people would assist in, in being able to kind of open up, particularly because you're not necessarily having a face-to-face conversation, which, which you know, in some cases, part of the challenge. But at the same time, as you say, a lot of the culture surrounding social media can be quite toxic. And I, I know some folks might take exception to that, but I think it can be genuinely toxic when you look at some of the attitudes that people kind of um, put forward and the way in which they conduct themselves. So 
what has been done and perhaps more crucially, what has and hasn't worked in terms of addressing mental health to lead us to the situation that we're in today? Sure. I mean, I think to pick up on the social media point first, I think you're absolutely, I don't mean to sound down on social media. I think clearly the, the internet has been a wonderful sort of advance in sort of, you know, making information available extraordinarily widely. And they do say knowledge is power. And there's clearly an enormous upside here, an enormous upside in terms of just community and being able to sort of, you know, meet and engage with people who otherwise people might just never have met. Um, so there is a, a, a massive sort of potential upside there, definitely, as you say. I think the way we're still really in the extreme infancy of, of sort of learning to deal with social media, mm-hmm. and it feels like it's hard to know. I don't have the answers to this. It's very hard to know what safeguards might be put up in place, but you can see there are clearly some issues arising with us in our sort of infancy, struggling to learn how to live well with social media. So I think it does make it easier uh, to show you know, a lower degree of compassion and just manners and decency yeah. towards people. Um, you know, I think if you think of some of the, the sort of horrible examples of abuse coming up online that are in the news sort of so regularly, it's, it does take more of an effort for somebody to behave that way in the street when you're, you know, in front of somebody, not least because I suppose you face the risk of being sort of hit in the face or something. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, so that idea of sort of, I guess, the classic thing of trolls being able to survive in an anonymous way and just do whatever comes to the top of their head in an impulsive and cruel way. And the fact we don't really have the safeguards uh, against that. I know it's sort of popular. It's maybe a bit easy to knock the big social media providers. I'm sure it's, there's a balance that needs to be struck between, um, you know, the, how reasonable it is to police at such massive scale, allowing people freedom of speech versus trying to make sure that the worst excesses and certainly some of the, you know, the horrible sort of sexist, racist abuse that we've heard about in the news recently just doesn't happen and isn't tolerated. Um, so I do think that's, yeah, it's the, I don't, don't really know the answers to this, but from, from our point of view, we just try and, I suppose, recognise that there are, this does create issues. And so as providers of mental health services, just try and be sensitive to those and, and you know, be available when people do find that it's, it's not sort of working for them. And there is, as I say in the book, if one has a really terrible experience of it, there is always the option of, of switching it off. And personally, I have very little in the way of social media. <laughs> and uh, yeah. I think that just sort of, I, I sort of prefer life that way. Um, I think you're asking as well, Zach, am I right about um, what's been done to try and treat mental health sort of more recently and what's, what sort of worked and hasn't worked? Um, so, yeah, so as I say, I think pr- probably broadly from the mid-20th century is... Um, far fewer amongst us were sort of entering institutions. Um, medication for mental health issues did sort of become a very, very big thing. And again, that can be very helpful in many circumstances. The risk is if it's the only option that's available, that it's kind of an, an easy thing perhaps for a GP or somebody to prescribe a medication and then people might stay on them for a long, long time and become dependent rather than it being something that they have for a period that perhaps to help them through particular period of difficulties and then come off. Um, more latterly, uh, in this country, the sort of big investments from the government have been in talking therapies to try and to try and sort of move away from that. Uh, and personally, I am a great advocate of the talking therapies. Uh, again, I accept it's really people with mild to moderate issues who benefit here, and there'll always be people whose issues are, are more sort of acute or severe who, who might need inpatient care or medication. 
Um, but certainly, actually, in this country, again, although we sort of the government gets knocked a lot, many things, there has been since about 2008 a huge investment in what's called the, the National IAPT or Improving Access to Psychological Therapies Program. And the idea there was really, again, I'm slightly oversimplifying, but prior to that, it was often the case that if somebody needed some kind of help with depression, anxiety, other mental health issues, they'd go to their GP and the options might be medication, which is easy for the GP because they can do it immediately. Or perhaps they might have a counsellor who visits the practice once a week, and but there's a year's waiting list to see them because they're just not enough resource to go around. So there was a real effort, a sort of ring-fenced investment from 2008 to meet the costs of training up a workforce trained in CBT, cognitive behavioural therapy. There's a very good evidence base that CBT can help with these mild to moderate sort of issues I was talking about. And there has been a huge investment since that time. And I think partly that's just a practical recognition that actually if we don't intervene to help people at their time of need, we're not only missing an opportunity to do something that's morally right, you know, it's just the right thing to do to help people who need help, um, but actually society and ultimately the government, the taxpayer, will pay for this because if we don't help people while their needs are mild to moderate, we create an opportunity that their needs become severe and they, their sort of mental health issues might leach into dependence on self-medicating, on alcohol or drugs. Um, and the sort of implications of this are that they could turn up to their GP much more regularly, which obviously has a cost to it. They may turn up at A&E, which is a very, very common thing where people have nowhere else to go. So in their desperation, they just go to A&E or the classic thing, they come to the attention of the police and they, I know the police spend a lot of their time dealing with issues that are really mental health issues or could have been mental health issues if we got upstream of them sort of reaching full expression and help people when they first needed it. Um, and of course, if you do, if you do that, as well as those cost savings, you might help people get to the point where they're you know, ultimately in some cases end up either homeless or, you know, life of crime, all these other costs to society. So there was some recognition that investment in primary care mental health, mental health services, people with mild to moderate issues, I mean, um, is, is just an efficient thing to do from a systems perspective, because for every pound we spend there, we might save, we might save many more in other areas of the public purse. So more recently, I think in this country, we are actually, we have quite a good record of making available talking therapies now free via the NHS. Typically in many countries, sorry, in many parts of this country, waiting times are much better than they were 15, 20 years ago. People might typically be seen within, they might be assessed within a week and perhaps it's quite typical to be received the first therapy session within a month. Um, so there have been sort of some, some great strides, I think, to give a fair and balanced answer to that. <laughs> Ultimately, what do you think the future holds for managing all of our mental health? Yeah, um, personally, this is something I'm extremely optimistic about, partly for the reasons I touched on earlier. One is I do feel that this sort of old stigma impediment, you know, this great barrier to people seeking help, that they think they can't talk about it, they must suppress it, they must repress it, and then that just causes more problems. I really feel that we're sort of well on the way to tackling that and some attitudes really have moved on. So that's one of the reasons I'm optimistic. And the other is I can see sort of that availability of services when people take that brave, brave decision to reach out. It's far from perfect, but it's an awful lot better than it was. Um, and there is, there is much more in the way of help there available to people. Um, in, in the broader sense, in terms of managing mental health, obviously we all sort of have a, a role to play as individuals in managing our own mental health. And just these last two years, have brought some pretty extraordinary 
challenges to them. So I think we've got a particular sort of spike of need at the moment. But again, just in, in general terms, I feel that people are much more aware of it. They're much more aware of the need to sort of be kind to themselves in the sense of look after their own mental health, not sort of feel ashamed if they, they are struggling. And so I think, although it might seem still as if this is, you know, we've got a, a major problem here, and I certainly don't mean to un underplay the seriousness of, it, seriousness of it in any way, what's heartening to me is that it is being taken seriously. And I can see we're on a trajectory that feels like things are being done and they're moving in a good direction. I do like that, you know, there is reason for positivity. And funnily enough, that's been a, a common theme running through this kind of history of the future week that we've been doing that, you know, whatever the, the situations, whether it's looking at, you know, drone warfare and intrusion into private lives, whether it's um, the, the history of climate change and, you know, the threats posed by climate change and, and now with, with mental health, you know, there are reasons for optimism. Richard, thank you so much for your time today. Your book, Psyche, The Mental Health Crisis and How We Got Here, is out now, I believe. Um, I had a chance to read through it, found it really a really interesting read. Um, now, you said that, you know, you don't have a social media presence, so we won't kind of advertise your, your Twitter and so on. But folks, go to the History Hack bookstore where Boney will have uploaded the details and you'll be able to buy it there. Richard, thanks ever so much for this. That's great. Thank you both so much. Hello folks, Zach again here. As you know, we love bringing you these podcasts, but each episode has a huge investment of time behind it. For every hour of showtime, there's often a good four, five or six hours of work that's going in behind the scenes. We want to bring you more content, video content even, but as reality has hit and the need to earn a living has returned, we just haven't been able to do that. That's where you come in. Your support doesn't need to be financial. You can follow us on Twitter at hack underscore history. Find us on Facebook and Instagram. Subscribe on YouTube. Even simple likes, shares and retweets make a huge difference in widening our reach beyond the small army of you who tune in. And if you love the show, leave a review. If all our listeners were able to find the two minutes to do that, it would massively increase our reach. Of course, we totally get that times are hard and money is tight. If you can spare something and want to, there are different ways that you can help. If you want to become a regular supporter, check out patreon.com forward slash history hack. There are all kinds of perks across different levels of support with prices starting at £3 a month. If you just want to send us a one-off tip, then visit co-fee.com forward slash history hack. The links are in the description to this episode. But importantly... Also, have a think about supporting our listeners. The hour they spend with us is a minuscule fraction of the time that they spend researching and writing their books. With that in mind, we set up the History Hack bookstore, where you can support both them and us, instead of funding Jeff Bezos' next trip into space, which is what pretty much happens when you buy via Amazon. Again, the link is in the description, and we have a huge back catalogue of titles written by our guests. When you buy via uk.bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash history hack, we get a percentage and so do independent booksellers. Whatever form your support takes, we massively appreciate it. So from Alex, Boney and me and the rest of your down the pub regulars, thank you and have a great day. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no brainer. 
Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.